Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Natasha Mascarenas, and this is our Wednesday show where we niche down to a single person, think about their work and unpack the rest. Today, we're talking to Nolan Church, the co-founder and CEO of Continuum. And before that, he was the head of talent at DoorDash and the chief people officer at Carta. He's one of my favorite sources because he's really spicy to talk to, and he's bringing some Salt Lake City representation to the pod. So Nolan, welcome. And how is it out there? It's great to be here, Natasha. It is currently snowing in Salt Lake City. We are having a great early season. So everyone listening, please do not come and leave the slopes to be. (laughs) I have to say, I feel like every VC was like pitching me on Salt Lake City for the growing venture scene, but also as a place to spend the winter season. So is it, I'm I'm guessing you're going to start having a lot more networking events coming up. (laughs) VCs love to do these like snowcat and hella skiing tours. And so I would be lying if I'm not trying to get involved in any of them. So if any VCs are listening, uh, please email me. Would love to join. And I'm a spicy guest, as Natasha said. (laughs) This will be fun. I mean, we're talking today about a topic that's been in the headlines throughout 2022, which is layoffs in tech. And Nolan, I've turned to you for this topic, both on the record and off, because you're building a startup that's all about fractional work and because you've helped conduct a layoff when you were the chief people officer at Carta. That was in the beginning of the pandemic, if I'm correct. And it was a very different time in tech. That's correct. Yep. I have run a layoff, unfortunately, at Carta, which was probably one of the lowlights of my career. And then at Continuum, we've probably helped now about a dozen companies over the course of the last six or seven months uh, run layoffs. Okay, got it. Well, that's good context. And I think gives some helpful understanding to the listeners as to why it's important to talk to you about it. But I want to start with, I wouldn't say a gift, but a news hook that is makes this episode particularly important, which is Twitter layoffs. Obviously, we also the news that last week, thousands of Twitter employees were let go. You know, I can run through the high level. Basically, an internal memo went out on Thursday. People received an email with the subject line, your role at Twitter. It was signed off just by Twitter at large. And we just saw live on Twitter through the hashtag love where you worked, how people were losing access to their email and Slack from key teams and kind of abruptly as well. Then this week, we learned from Bloomberg and Platformer that the company has asked some folks to return as they were laid off by, quote, mistake. It's it's been a mess. And, and Nolan, as someone who's an executive with employees of their own, but also advising startups conducting layoffs of their own, how have you been reading the Twitter situation? I think that this is one of the most unique situations that we've ever seen. Obviously, Elon bought the company. And the other news that came out was Twitter was burning $4 million a day. Yeah. And in this interest rate environment, that is untenable. And so I do think something drastic had to be done. There were other reports saying that Twitter was already thinking about cutting 20 to 30% of its staff. Um, So I do think he had to do something. Now, in general, how they did it, I think, is the thing that we're all talking about. Mm -hmm. And specifically, you know, the losing of access piece, let's go through each of these. So the losing of access piece, I actually think makes sense because Elon taking over Twitter, we already knew that a bunch of employees were unhappy. And so you have to cut off access to the large majority of the company because Twitter is something that everyone across the globe uses. That's how a lot of us get our news information. And if something happened from an employee, it could hurt the credibility of the company. So that piece makes sense. The piece around your role at Twitter and that email and how they decided to send that, I think is incredibly callous. 
I think is very short-sighted of Elon, given that ultimately, if the company is successful, they will be hiring again. Sure. And so I think those sorts of things, like people will remember how they felt and people will remember how they saw this play out on Twitter and on social media. For those that are considering roles at Twitter or SpaceX or any of Elon's other endeavors. Yeah. So my take is, is something had to be done clearly in order to get costs under control, but how it was done was clearly rushed, clearly not Elon's best moment, but Elon is the best marketer in the world. He is the best organic marketer in the world. And we are still talking about Elon and we are still talking about Twitter. So ultimately, I think he's going to end up on top on this. When you say on top, what do you mean? Like successful in trying to get people to come back? I think the pitch that we saw happen of the fact that some people are are now being pitched to return. A lot of people are saying no, but people who need to turn to Twitter for visa situations are saying yes. To me, that still feels like you've created a workforce that's going to take a long time to build back trust. And I'm panning a broad stroke as someone who's not working at Twitter, but I just imagine that it didn't just impact the people who were laid off. It impacted, I think, as I saw one news outlet cover it as like the people who are left over and are staying at Twitter. Totally. I mean, look, when I say Elon's going to remain on top, I mean, he tweeted today that Twitter has the most daily active users that it's ever had. And I think a lot of that is, is because we're talking about him and we're talking about the company nonstop. So that's what I mean. As it relates to cutting very deep and then cutting potentially too deep and asking some teams to come back, I think it's a, it's an easy soundbite in the press to be like, oh man, like this wasn't run well. And, And clearly it could have been run better. But that said, it's not the first company to where this has happened. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Like, how often do we see people be asked to come back? You know, very candidly, it happened when I was at Carta and we did a layoff. And the, the thinking from the executive team was we wanted to cut incredibly deep and cut once. Mm-hmm. And then for us, it was about a couple of months later to where we saw the business rebound post-COVID. And we, we very quickly realized that we actually needed a lot of those folks back because the business was growing faster than we had expected, which was a good problem. At Twitter, you know, we're, we're talking about a number of days here. So I don't think anything's like quite changed to sure. the, the business fundamentals. And so clearly it was rushed with how they were going about their business. But that said, it's not the first company to where it's happened. And in fact, you know, we're seeing a lot of companies now run multiple layoffs and The one thing I will commend Elon on is cutting deep the first time, because I'm seeing a lot of founders cut very shallow the first time and then having to come back for a second and third round of layoffs. Right. I mean, in a way, I feel like Elon's one extreme cut deep, perhaps too deep, and then have to reverse within days. And then the other extreme is only cutting 5%, then cutting 10 and then 15, like we saw you know, on deck, for example, go through multiple rounds of layoffs. And it's a topic me and you have talked about at length because it is a little bit like, do you want people after that first layoff who are at the company to still feel like they're on their toes? Probably not. You probably want some retention strategies in place. So not to give this any more airtime before we get to the broader topic, the idea that we're talking about it, it depends on how you think about like, if is all press good press or is all conversation helpful to someone's image? And I, I think right now the questions around Elon's leadership, the way these leaks are coming out to me feels problematic and potentially like precarious for the future of the platform. And he doesn't have this huge base of support internal to Twitter just based on the amount of leaks coming out there. And I do think that's part of the trust that's been broken that he needs to build back before we start seeing people go head down and build. I don't know. We'll see, right? Like, I mean, I have a different take on this. And, you know, my take is that Elon's management style is very well known in the public eye. 
how he's run SpaceX, how he's run Tesla. I mean, Tesla basically does a 10% riff every year. Yeah. And it's really a performance management thing. But like, you know, people internally are calling it, oh, the 10% riff thing is coming up again. So the Twitter culture under Jack and Parag is a much different culture than Elon runs at SpaceX and Tesla. And so, you know, to your point around him earning back trust, I would actually say he is completely revamping the culture and he is putting his stamp on it and he is doing it within a matter of weeks of taking over the company. Now, again, like how he's doing it, how he's making people feel is where I would be critical about him. But the fact that he's doing it I would have to say that it takes a lot of brass to make those kinds of moves. And I think a lot of founders are going to look at Elon and start to move a little bit more decisively than what we've seen up to this point. I'll add that what he's doing beyond the 50% layoff, but you know, firing a lot of the executives is pretty standard when it comes to a takeover of this size. And so it's a good reminder for, I think, media, Twitter, people in general watching this play out, that it's not crazy to watch someone fire an entire executive staff when you are looking to kind of make the change that you're talking about. Well, on that note, and I don't know if these reports were confirmed, but I did read reports that Elon had fired the executive staff for cause. And that is uncommon. Yeah. Because firing for cause means that these executives will not receive their windfall. They will not receive their gigantic stock grants that they were supposed to get post the acquisition. Yeah. And that is something that I actually haven't, like, I don't think we know why yet, but Elon had been subtweeting some things about lying about bots and lying about other information in the acquisition docs. And so I'm very curious to see where that goes because I think we're still at the very beginning of that. Yeah, I mean, he's he's one of the worst subtweeters in the world, I will say. <laughs> we all know sure. who he's talking about. Well, let's generalize this. And I want you to walk me through, you had a good thread about this recently, on the best way to conduct a shitty thing, which is a layoff. Twitter kind of give us, like I said, an extreme example, but let's say you are, let's pick a stage, like a Series D company. Yep. What's the best way to kind of start thinking about layoffs? Because you do have more people to cut and maybe have to choose between, do I cut 10, 20, 30, 50%? Totally. So I was looking at the stats this morning from layoffs.fyi, and yep. in 2022, uh, 757 startups now have conducted layoffs and we're at more than 100,000 employees being impacted. I personally think that we will probably see another 30 to 40,000 employees being impacted by the end of Q1. And the reason why is because you have a lot of companies who raised in the fever gold rush of post-COVID 2020, 2021, and they're sitting on a lot of cash and have been sitting on a lot of cash. But now, as we're seeing in the markets, I mean, I was looking at Cloudflare yesterday. They had a massive quarter. They're, you know, they're not at a billion-dollar run rate. Matthew's saying that they're going to be at a $5 billion run rate in five years, and they're trading at like a $12 billion valuation. Totally. So the startups that are you know, at a billion-dollar valuation and in the single-digit millions or tens of millions of revenue category, they are going to get hit, and reality is going to hit them hard. So the steps that I think about when running a, a layoff is the first thing is, is like looking at the model and being realistic with where the world is today is the first thing. And the world has changed and we started to see this happen in November of last year. That's obviously accelerated. And so now people should have an understanding of the new business reality and what it will take to get to either profitability or get to something tenable to raise your next round. Mm-hmm. From there, it's really important to cut non-headcount expenses first 
look, headcount is going to be 70 to 80% of a company's OPEX, unfortunately. So we're going to have to get there. But if you can cut non-headcount expenses, ultimately, you could potentially be saving jobs and saving resources for you to get back on the right track. My theory, the biggest thing is to cut once and to tuck in your top performers. And so this is somewhat counterintuitive to what I've been seeing with other companies and startups specifically in the space right now. Many people are doing multiple cuts, which just totally zaps morale internally. It's a bad reflection of leadership. It's a bad reflection on our ability to plan. And ultimately, I think the best employees in those companies are wondering, like, what is actually going on? And is this the right place for me to stay at? Because already you're, you're doing these cuts, I think it's critical to look at your top performers and potentially to even give them increases in salary and or equity because you need them in order to survive and to reach the next milestone. And let me ask a quick follow-up there. When yeah. I interview executives that are conducting layoffs, one of the first questions I'll ask them is, have you considered cutting executive salaries as part of this? How, what do you think about that tactic? Because I do think we see some people do it just to show that if the C-suite wasn't impacted with their entire job being lost, they are taking some sort of a cut. Does it make the difference? It really doesn't make a difference. I mean, if you're talking about a Series D company with hundreds or potentially thousands of employees, cutting pay, you know, executive pay 20%, just run the math on that. You're talking in the hundreds of thousands, you know, maybe a million bucks category for the entire executive staff. That could save a couple of jobs, certainly. But the reality is, is that you need your best people. And so if you are making them take a pay cut, now you have created, potentially they are now loose in the saddle. Sure. And so if they leave, then you have a double whammy of a problem. And that's why I don't recommend it for startups because it is symbolic. I do not believe it actually impacts the ability of the business to reach the next milestone. When it comes to actually communicating, you know, okay, let's say you choose to cut deep. Are you someone who would say it's always better to kind of call one-on-one or is it a big Zoom. I mean, I feel like we've seen so many different versions and I'm not sure if there's a best one or if it even differs based on stage if you're a Series A versus Series D company. Yeah. I'll tell you what we did at Carta. Yeah. And again, just reflecting back on, on one of the worst days of my professional career, Henry ended up publishing the note yeah. that he actually spoke to the company about. And that's how we led off the day which I think you're starting to see now from some of the exemplar companies, like Stripe specifically, I thought did a fantastic job of this. Yeah, and for context, like Stripe cut jobs last week. It was about 13% of staff, 14% of staff. Correct. They posted a memo, which we'll link in the show notes, as well as Carta's from 2020. Correct. So, you know, what we did at Carta was, and the outline for our day was, we had a company-wide Zoom in which Henry read the memo that he ultimately posted Then what we did is we had one-on-ones all day long for the employees that were impacted with their manager and with an HR representative. This was candidly very hard to pull off, but we felt like it was the right thing to do, which is ultimately what we were optimizing for when we ran the layoff at Carta. What we also decided to do was to leave the slack of the employees that were impacted on for 24 hours. So they could communicate with their friends, uh, so they could share their contact information. And then we also created an alumni group, again, similar to what you have been seeing Stripe do and some of the other exemplar companies do. But I will tell you that at a massive scale, Carta was about 1,200 employees, you know, when we did it. And we cut, I believe, 13% of our staff. So you're cutting, you know, that was in the 100, maybe 150 employee number. It was very hard to pull off to do all of the one-on-ones. I would recommend it if you can, 
But ultimately, some of these companies reach such a scale to where it is impossible to have all of the conversations in one day. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing that you guys are able to do one-on-one. And I wonder, if, like, when you're looking back, was there anything you would have done differently about the way that day played out? You know, I've thought a lot about this, um, especially as I've seen like some of the other layoffs take place with Better.com and Twitter. And, you know, very candidly, no. I thought that Henry took full responsibility. Um, I thought that the package that we offered to employees was incredibly generous. I thought that the one-on-ones was the right thing to do, even though that it was a huge tax on managers you know, ultimately, I think that we were very thoughtful about it. And I think we laid out a, a playbook for other founders to follow. Yeah, I mean, we saw this like idea of taking responsibility, I believe, play out with Robinhood as well when they conducted layoffs earlier this year. And then bringing us back to Twitter for one second, we saw Jack Dorsey tweet a few days after the layoff that he ultimately owns responsibility for the fact that Twitter overhired. And I think that delay also created a lot of tension. But I wonder if the bar is getting higher from consumers, readers and employees themselves to wanting people to say, hey, it was my fault over time. So the way I think about this, Natasha, is that Over the last 12 years, the pendulum between who has power with employees and employers has drastically swung towards employees. Now we're in a moment to where the pendulum is swinging back. But, you know, if I predict where the next five to 10 years are going, the best talent is ultimately always going to be sought after. And I think employees now will continue to hold more power as they go forward. And they will remember how companies handled this moment. Yeah. And so, you know, to your point around Jack, very candidly, I thought that was so weak. He waited to say anything. He sent out like two sentences. I thought Jack, like, and as somebody who has followed Jack and has been a fan of Jack's for a very long time, I thought that this was the definition of weak leadership and I would have expected more from him. And if I was an employee thinking about working for Jack in the future, I would think twice about it. When we compare his statement with Elon's statement, which was, you know, this is unfortunate, but Twitter was burning 4 million a day. Again, I feel like it's these two extremes. There's like the vague two lines and then there's like, well, this was just a business decision and that's it. And I wonder, we can't speak for employees, all employees, but I I do feel like it's probably a very confusing time to be an ex-Twitter employee figuring out what to make sense of. It's dramatic, honestly, to go through that and not see someone take, either of these leaders take ownership. Well, I mean, in Elon's case, the only thing that he could own is that he paid a really high price for Twitter given today's current market condition (laughs) and ultimately decided to act swiftly to get their expenditures under control. He did not make the decisions to make Twitter burn $4 million a day. Sure. And so, you know, could he have had more empathy? Certainly. Him taking more responsibility? I don't know if that's his job. I think that that was Jack's job and I think Jack did a terrible job at it. Okay, interesting. I want to run one more theory by you before we get into 2023. I was hearing a while ago this idea of like, there's like a magic number that VCs are telling startups to lay off, which is 20% of staff. And we did see a lot of companies fit that mold where it's like all these late stage companies had to cut exactly 20%. And I'm wondering if that was just kind of something that came about via tech Twitter and a trend that wasn't actually there. Or if you have found there to be a magic number when cutting staff and when giving advice to startups that you work with at Continuum. Yeah. I mean, I do not think that there is a magic number that applies to all startups that are in this moment right now. And in fact, I think like if you're taking that sort of advice, that that sounds like quite terrible advice in my opinion. (laughs) Because the reality is, is that today 
you likely need to have two years of runway. That is more of what I've been hearing from investors, like somewhere between two and three years of runway to survive through this moment and reach to the next stage. 20%, you know, if you're at a 100-person company is much different than if you're at a 1,000-person company. And quite frankly, I think the North Star should be revenue because we know what it takes to raise at the next round. Generally, there are good benchmarks as it relates to revenue and what your cash burn is. Yeah. And so I, I don't think 20% is like a, a good rule of thumb. I think in general, you need to be thinking about two years of runway and you need to be thinking about hitting your revenue and cost numbers for whatever the next round is. I agree with that. Like, I agree that generalizations in general in tech, even though they're really nice to latch onto to try and understand something, actually can end up doing more damage. And I feel the same way about the fact that, you know, we constantly repeat a lot of the metrics around how hard it is for historically overlooked people to get fundraising. Yeah. I don't think that necessarily makes it easier or amplifies the stories. Anyways, one thing that it complicates, though, some of this advice is that I've noticed like that all layoffs are not created equally. Some say that they've really overhired. Some are just kind of citing this, quote, macroeconomic landscape and are laying people off. I think about even Brex, which laid off a percent of staff, but is also still doing pretty huge marketing campaigns. Okay. Not sure if yachts are still included there, but I find it to be like a lot of whiplash. And I'm not sure if you have any hacks on how to differentiate between those qualities of layoffs or really how to make sense of them. Because it does, I tweeted this, which is like, there's a lay layoffs that happen because the company needed to. And then there's the layoffs that happened because a company said that they needed to. And you don't really know if they needed to, but they're taking this as a chance to kind of cut while everyone else is cutting. I think the, the two generalizations that I can make is one, we got drunk on hiring for the last 10 to 15 years. Like just in general, tech was drunk on hiring. And so that is 100% true. We've seen this at the big tech companies. We've seen this at the hyperscale companies that are pre-IPO. And so there's absolutely a reset there. The second thing is, is that even though some of these companies may be doing quite well, the valuation reset has happened. And so they do need to survive longer in order to either grow into their valuation or hopefully even see like an up round. We haven't really seen any of this stuff play out yet, if we're being honest, because the late stage pre-IPO market has basically shut down. It's completely iced over sure. right now. We have not seen many of these deals get done. Only for the best companies are they getting done. And it's just in the handful. And so I do think you do need to extend runway. And I'll say actually one more thing, which is not only do we get drunk on hiring, we forgot to manage performance. And so in general, many of the CEOs that I am talking to, yes, they are categorizing it as a layoff. But the reality is, is that they were not managing performance of their employees and a layoff is a guise for what is truly a performance management riff at scale. I like that a lot. I hadn't thought of the idea of it also being a correction on the performance end. And it makes me think about, well, you're building this company. It's about connecting executives, both for fractional and full-time opportunities to startups. And it kind of does answer some of the questions that startups might be going through about how do we hire right now in a way that's sustainable and maybe is vetted for high performance. So talk yep. to me a little bit about how Continuum came to be and how it touches on some of the topics we've talked about today. Totally. So at DoorDash and at Carta, I've probably run about 100 executive searches now. And, and here's the dirty secret with executive search. It's $100,000 to $150,000 per search. Oftentimes, the search firms are asking for equity. Oof. The average tenure equity. of an executive. Yeah, it's, <laughs> in, it's insane. I have, I'll tell you some stuff offline. <laughs> but the average tenure of an executive now is about 18 months. And it takes between six and nine months to hire somebody. 
And so if you think about like all of that math, it just doesn't add up in today's world. And look, executive recruiters are good people, but a mediocre recruiter is making about a million bucks a year. They work 30 hours a week and they are not incentivized to do anything differently because they've created a monopoly in the space. Sure. And so our take on this is that early stage companies are a bellwether and early stage companies have been leaning into fractional for the last two to four years. And we're seeing that trend increase. So when we started thinking about how can we disrupt executive search, what we thought about was how can we create access to some of the best executives in the world and give that access in a way that isn't just in this full time context, which is the only way executive recruiters will work with you. So at a high level, we connect executives to companies for consulting, advising, and angel investing opportunities. Primarily, we're working with Series A through about Series D companies okay. that are all pre-IPO tech. And I'm seeing more and more companies at the top of our funnel. And I think the reason why is because we're faster, we're cheaper, and ultimately, you can feel somebody out much better when you begin to work with them versus interviewing them where, candidly, executives are pretty good talkers. And we don't really learn a whole lot during the interview process anyways. Stepping into what you said when you first were talking about this, the idea that startups were turning to fractional work over time, like what was 1.0 and where are we now? Because I'm curious, like what habit changed beyond maybe a need and not as much budget as they had in 2021 where they could have hired someone full time and been okay? Yeah, 1.0 of this, and I think this has been going on for a while, which is like the fractional CFO is somebody to come in and manage the books. And I actually think fractional CFO gives the fractional world a bad name because typically it's not a CFO. Typically it's a glorified accountant who's running your books. Mm -hmm. That was kind of 1.0. But what we're seeing now, especially with like seed through series B companies, is this desire to tap into somebody for call it 10 to 30 hours a week to pay them a fraction of what their salary and equity package would be and to ultimately put them to the test in a real work environment versus a theoretical environment, which is interviewing. And so what we're seeing right now is like with these early stage companies, they need access to great talent. And oftentimes they cannot hire this talent because they're tired. They you know, don't want to work full time right now. They have family obligations. They have a huge nest egg. And so they don't have to or they can't afford them. Execs are expensive. And so I think it's a great way for both sides to test out what a relationship would look like before committing to a full-time relationship. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, like, I think the positive that you mentioned is is the biggest one in my eyes, which is like this idea of testing it out and of it being a more affordable way to see if you even need a CFO at this point in time. The negative kind of goes back, I think, to something we talked about earlier, which is the power of people right now. And by negative, I mean, it's more that how do you as a startup, maybe you understand that you want this fractional person, but you do eventually need them full time and you can't afford to yeah. share them with anyone else. Does starting off on a fractional note make it harder to go full time eventually? I feel like that to me is probably the bigger challenge down the road. Here's what I would say is that the smartest companies that we're partnered with, they know they will ultimately need somebody full time, but they start fractional before that actually is the case. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is that they leverage their fractional exec to either to help them hire that person who will ultimately join full time, oh, which smart. is much cheaper yeah. than an executive recruiter. Or two, they build such a great relationship with them that they convince them to join full time. That second piece is a lot harder. And the joke that I always tell companies that we're partnered with, because they ask me every time, like, hey, can I hire this person? And I always <laughs> say, good luck. Like, I'm wishing you the best. But using that person and their network to help you source and then assess, I think is the smartest way to hire executives. And I think that wave is just beginning to start. Yeah, why not take advantage of having them 
on your payroll for a certain point of time. If we connect it back to the layoffs, do you think we'll see, you know, the thousands, the tens of thousands of employees who were impacted by this wave turn to something like fractional work going forward? I know you're starting with executives at Continuum, but I'm curious if you feel any changes on just like the general employee front and being open to it. To me, it seems like I would struggle to go for something a little unstable. I would want to just join a safe, boring job, but I'm curious if you're finding more optimism from people. Well, so let's go back to that pendulum comment that yeah. I made earlier between employees and employers. Right now, the pendulum between employees and employers is more towards employers. And that's unfortunately the reality for employees. And so I think employers right now can command whatever relationship they want with the general population. That is not the case with executives. Executives have always been in high demand. They are still in high demand right now. And so executives, they still have the power pendulum on their side, and they are the ones dictating the terms of the types of engagements that they want to work in. And so that's the part of the reason why we have focused on this group is because candidly, you have executive recruiters as the one option, and then you have on one side, and then on the other side, you have like Upwork and Fiverr in which executives are not going to associate their brand there. And that's where we fit in really nicely and where we feel like as a challenger company, we're right where we want to be. Okay. So you don't necessarily see like yourself expanding anytime soon to trying to help employees laid off. Unfortunately, no, I I would love to help. I I am pointing people towards Dover. So Dover has a layoff site to where they're collating all of the layoff lists. They're helping some of these employees find jobs. I know Max, the CEO, they're great people over there. And so for those people that are impacted, I would highly encourage you to check out Dover because they are the ones that are really trying to help these folks that are impacted find their next role. Yeah. Okay. Got it. And it's it's maybe a follow-up episode, which is like how much the spreadsheets have made an impact. And I do think for a long time, that was the best we have. I've been seeing some new programs pop up, but nothing that I can write about yet. I'll end with what's structurally changing about the way companies are building after this huge stress test that felt very public and really showed, yeah, the power of employers on employees. To me, I'll answer it first, but to me, I imagine that if you are a pre-seed founder right now, watching late stage companies conduct layoffs, and you think that you're untouched and can be heads down right now, I imagine you are making a big mistake and probably should start thinking about a more creative way to hire. Not to completely agree with Continuum's pitch, but I do think it's a really important time to get comfortable with the idea of fractional work or at least changing what you think a productive staff needs to look like. Yeah, That's my high-level take. I'm curious what you think. Look, I think you're spot on. I think the makeup of companies is going to change. Mike Maples has talked about in the future, it's not going to be employers and employees. It's going to be employers and contributors. Okay. And look, I, I'm not as radical as him <laughs> in, in this idea. I think it's a, I think it's an interesting thought. And, you know, maybe we get there in 20 years. But my take is, is that, again, early stage companies are a bellwether. And if you look at a seed or series A company today, I would bet that more than 30% of their staff is contractors. And so just like, just watch this. We're also seeing employers start to think about wage arbitrage in other ways, which is hiring in different locations. Mm-hmm. You see in the rise of deal and the, and the rise of remote, and, and that's obviously happening as well. I think in general, late stage companies are late to the party right now. And that's part of the reason why I'm predicting 30 to 40,000 more employees being impacted by layoffs in Q1 because they have not cut deep yet. I just haven't seen it at scale for the late stage tech companies that are not going to be able to grow into their valuations. And I do believe Fractional would give them more opportunities to extend runway while also being able to access the talent that they really need. It's insane to me that 
the worst of the worst. It might be ahead of us because I feel like yeah. we've been surrounded by layoffs as a reporter, but to your vantage point, to a lot of other people I've been talking to, it sounds like there's more to come, which is shitty, but I want to end with a lightning round of questions. Um, one word answers or maybe okay. one phrase answers if possible. All right. All right, cool. So number one, which executive role do you think is most ready to be disrupted? Marketing. Oh, I want to ask follow-up questions, but I'm going to try not paying attention. Okay. What do you need to see change in 2023? Oh, that's a good question. What do I need to see change in 2023? Everything. (laughs) I would say cost cutting. What is the worst advice you've ever gotten about startups? Uh, The worst advice I've gotten about startups would be focus on one thing. Interesting. What is one thing you've unlearned recently? Uh, I'll just say very succinctly, I have a lot more empathy now for my other CEOs that I reported to. Okay. Last question. If you had to sum up 2022 in a headline, what would it be? I know we're doing a creative writing exercises right now. (laughs) The best time to buy tech stocks. Thank you so much, Nolan, for coming on the podcast. It was a blast to have you. And you definitely delivered on the hot takes and made me even rethink some of my own. So I appreciate you. Tell people where to find you online and where to find Continuum. Yeah, check us out, joincontinuum.com. And then you can always email me at nolan at joincontinuum. Natasha, it's always great to hang with you. Thanks for the time. Come back on Equity anytime. And everyone else, we will be back on Friday. See you then. Bye. Equity Wednesdays are hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter, Natasha Mascarenas, editor-in-chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch senior reporter, Marianne Azevedo. We're produced by Teresa Locansolo with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back next week.